With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic D Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by Eden Foods, the most trusted name in certified organic clean food. When you shop online at EdenFoods.com, enter the coupon code ORGVIEW to receive 20% off any regularly priced items, excluding cases. For other promotional offers, please visit TheOrganicView.com's website. And don't forget to check out our contest section. On today's show, Tom and I will be joined by bee health advocate and environmental author Graham White to talk about the importance of the dose-time ratio. First, I'd like to welcome to the show my co-host, Colorado beekeeper, Mr. Tom Theobald. Hello, Tom. Hello, June. Hello, Graham. Hi, guys. Greetings from Scotland. Greetings indeed. Graham, so nice to have you back on the show. Graham, for people that are just tuning in to the show, could you just take a moment and share with our listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a retired environmental educator and teacher, and I started keeping bees in about 1994. And uh, keeping bees was a, a whiz, as they say. It was very easy until about 2003 when my bees began to not do so well and to die and um, basically I have 10 beehives and I can't make honey where I live I just can't make it the the pesticides affect the health of the bee colonies to the extent that they never produce a surplus well that's all the more reason why people need to hear what you say today sure I think it's important, especially for people who are, in fact, just learning about neonicotinoids and their impact to understand some of the background for the development of systemic pesticides. So let's begin there. Graham, can you give us a little bit of the background? What are the most common systemic pesticides used? Well, the the history of pesticides is very interesting. Uh, DDT, which everyone's heard of, was developed around the time of the Second World War and it saved millions of lives because um, particularly soldiers and people, in, uh, people who were kept in concentration camps could be dusted with DDT and it would kill off lice, which were on their clothing. And lice were the carriers of typhus, which was a deadly uh, pathogen, a deadly disease. So DDT was very widely used during the war. It was seen as a lifesaver. And then after the war, that, as always happens, they said, well, how can we use up all of this DDT that was made for putting on clothing and buildings and they had the bright idea of using it on crops Uh, the interesting thing about that is that DDT is extremely persistent in the body and everybody listening to this program has DDT in their blood and their fat and their breast milk even though DDT was banned in the late 70s it's just it just never goes away it's almost eternal so Um, DDT was not a systemic pesticide. You put it on top of the leaves of the plant 
and the caterpillars or whatever came along and they came into contact with it and they died. And the same was true of the next generation of pesticides, which were called organochlorines, which were very closely related to DDT. They included um, chemicals like dieldrin and aldrin, and uh, they were just as lethal as DDT, and they also accumulated in human body fat, cow's milk, butter, anything with fat in it, they would accumulate. So eventually they were banned. Then they brought out organophosphates, which were derived from nerve gas weapons used during the Second World War and the Korean War. And they were even more dangerous, but they were dangerous in the acute sense. And if you, they made sheep dip out of them. And if you got drenched in sheep dip, as farmers did, uh, a lot of farmers developed Parkinson's disease and multiple sclerosis. And the chemical company said it's nothing to do with the sheep dip. But of course, everybody else thinks it was. So neonicotinoids came along in the early 1990s. And they were hailed as a uh, revolutionary breakthrough because they didn't appear to be very toxic to mammals or human beings. Uh, and you could um, put them inside the plants instead of outside the plants. So you probably remember, June, that your mother or your grandmother probably told you to always wash your apples and scrub your potatoes so that no pesticides went onto the kitchen table or into your diet. Well, that worked fine for DDT in terms of getting it off your cucumbers or your lettuce, but it doesn't work for systemic pesticides because they're not outside the plant, they're inside the plant. So what happens is the every single seed of maize, corn, uh, barley, oilseed rape or canola, uh, peas, beans, soybeans and so on, the seeds are coated with a layer of neonicotinoids before they are planted, it's stuck on with a glue to the seed. And when the plant germinates in the soil, it absorbs the poison into the growing structure and the poison perfuses right through the plant into the stem, the leaves, the flowers, the nectar, the pollen. And it eventually ends up in the fruit and the grain, which are the crop. So um, it's, it's literally a revolution the second aspect of that revolution is that neonics are incredibly poisonous. I mean, it's almost impossible to explain to a non-scientist. I'm not a scientist, but it's almost like impossible to explain just how poisonous they are. Uh, when I first looked into this, I worked out that I'd been told that three parts of poison in a billion parts of water, that dose would kill a bee if you gave it to the bee for... 48 hours. Now, I worked this out. If you took an Olympic-sized swimming pool, which is about a 1,000 uh, metric tons of water, right, and you put one tablespoon of poison into a 1,000 metric ton swimming pool, that dose would be about three parts per billion, and that would kill any insect or caterpillar or butterfly that came into contact with that is uh, literally uh, 11,000 times more toxic than DDT. It's been measured. Uh, clothianidin, which is the most widely used neonic these days, has been measured as being 11,000 times more toxic than DDT. So they're revolutionary because they're inside the plant, not outside it. And they're revolutionary in terms of just how poisonous they are. Thank you, Graham. 
we actually interviewed Dr. Hank Taneke back in, I think, 2013 in regards to the research that he conducted on this very subject. But it's something that has not been negated. And furthermore, it's something that people really need to start focusing on. Graham, can you explain the effects of these chemicals that reinforce toxicity over time of exposure? Right. It, this is, it sounds a very complicated thing. So I'll try. I, I spoke to Hank Tenekis today to ask his advice about how to explain this. And it's necessary to go into a bit of history, but it's really interesting history. Back in the Middle Ages, in the 14th century, there was a, a scientist, an early scientist called Paracelsus. And he came up with a very interesting set of ideas because poison was a very important thing. Even in medieval society, you wanted to avoid poison. The first, the first uh, concept that he came up with was that everything is poisonous. Now, that sounds very strange because we don't think of everything being poisonous. But the point he was making is if you take common table salt and you consume a gram of it on some roast beef, that's not going to kill you. But if you were to consume half a pound of table salt, you would die in a matter of minutes. Uh, and even down to fresh water, what we don't think of water as poisonous. You can drink uh, a pint or two pints of water if you're thirsty. It's not going to harm you. But if you were to try and drink 50 pints of water, and some people do this, some people under the influence of drugs, teenagers, take ecstasy, the drug, and one of the effects is it, it makes people drink compulsively. And there have been many, many cases where teenagers have died because they drank, you know, 20, 30 pints of water one after the other, uh, and the body cannot deal with that. So, so Paracelsus came up with two ideas. One was that everything is poison, in ultimately, uh, but it's the dose which makes the poison. If you drink one glass of water, it's not poisonous. If you drink 500 glasses, it will kill you. Uh, if you eat one teaspoonful of salt, it's a, a hell of a lot of salt, but that probably won't kill you. But if you eat a pound of salt, it will. And he, he, he looked into that for almost everything that exists. And of course, the, the general rule is don't overdo the dose. Don't drink too much water. Don't take too much salt. Don't smoke too many cigarettes and so on. So that laid the foundations for what we call toxicology, the science of poisons, the science of toxins. And it was assumed right down to the mid-1940s that there was a uh, simple relationship, what's called a linear relationship, with how much poison you give something and how long it takes it to die. So when they came to start testing poisons, when they came to start testing, for example, um, preservatives to go in food or you know other things that we add to food that we need to know if they're poisonous they would feed rats a certain amount and they would feed them they might double the amount every two days until they reached a point where they gave the rats you know say whatever the amount was and the rat would die and they would they would know very roughly uh, that that was the the threshold beyond which the thing was definitely poisonous so they would then probably pull back from that and say well we'll will not allow anyone to put anything like that amount in food. We'll maybe take one thousandth of that dose and say that's the legally allowed limit. Okay, so that worked pretty well um, until we got to near the Second World War when chemists were getting cleverer and cleverer 
at producing toxins for warfare and for poisons. And there were two scientists with very long names. One was called Hermann Druckri and the other one was called Thomas Kupfmuller. And they were working in, in Hitler's Germany during the Second World War. And it was very hard to get hold of butter. There was a great shortage of butter during the war. So they, they were working on margarine, which is an artificial form of butter. And they wanted to make it more palatable, to, to be more interesting. So somebody came up with a yellow dye, a dye stuff that could take margarine, which is normally white, and make it look like nice yellow butter. But they found out that people who were fed this butter started to develop cancer particularly liver cancer. And they tried out the normal dose relationship, you know, that if you double the amount of dye in the butter, do you get twice as much cancer and so on. And to their surprise, in fact, it came as a great shock, they found out that it didn't work that way. Uh, for carcinogens, chemicals that cause cancer, have a different relationship to dose and effect than ordinary chemicals like table salt or or whatever. And what they found, it's a very strange idea, this, that bees are a good example. They found, for example, uh, well, let, let's stick with the rat, sorry. They found that if they, let's say they gave a rat 10 grams of yellow dye, okay, over, say, two days, they could guarantee when they made this measurement that 100% of those rats would all develop liver cancer and they would all die. And that wasn't really a shock. That that they knew that they they knew the stuff was poisonous. They knew the rats were going to die. The shock came when they said, "Well, what happens if instead of giving them ten grams of yellow dye over two days, what happens if we give them a thousandth of a gram of yellow dye, but give it to them over a period of a hundred days?" And if you give so, what they found, which was a great surprise, no one had suspected this, was that if you reduce the amount of poison to a very, 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 very tiny dose, almost unmeasurable, you still produce just as many cancers. All of the rats still died of liver cancer because they were given this tiny, tiny dose over a very long period of time. And, and the real surprise was that when they measured the total amount of poison that each rat had been given, it was a tiny, tiny fraction of the dose which killed them in two days. And that had very... That's got very, very important um, implications when it comes to neonicotinoids because uh, Hank Tenekis is one of the people who worked with Herman Druckery and, and explained that this, this non-linear relationship, this idea that the poison becomes more poisonous if you give it in very tiny amounts over long periods of time, that's something that most people are not familiar with. But but it's generally accepted by every major, you know, the USDA and uh, the British Food Safety Agency and so on. They all accept this. This is the basis of modern toxicology. They all know that um, particularly the class of chemicals that we call carcinogens, there is no safe dose. That's the implication. Uh, because there's this long, long period, if you like, it's almost like incubating a disease. If you give anyone a carcinogen over a long, long period of time, it is never safe. There's always a very high risk of cancer. So um, that has, obviously has implications for food safety and what you allow into food. And the, the general law that was derived from that is 
you cannot allow a carcinogen into the human diet. And they were looking at things like heavy metals, um, dioxin, which is produced by burning stuff in power stations. Dieldrin and aldrin uh, are both carcinogens and endocrine disrupting chemicals, chemicals that disrupt the endocrine system. So all of those things are very, very carefully controlled. You cannot have dioxin in any food. You can't have one. It's, it's illegal to have a single atom of dioxin in any food. Uh, and so on for many of these dangerous chemicals. Is this all making sense? What, what's, interesting, what's interesting is that if you think about this very subject, it has been used repeatedly in Hollywood, not only in movies, but more recently uh, there was a remake of the, the film The Flowers in the Attic, and where the grand, I think the grandmother and the mother poisons the children that live up in the attic by using arsenic, uh, or rather by using powdered sugar that's laced with arsenic sure, to yeah. slowly kill off the children so that there was never any existence of any heirs. So it's, it, it is, it's actually a commonly accepted mode of action for killing off somebody for something theatrical you know, in Hollywood, but when it comes to science, People need to really pay attention to this, especially since it is impacting our pollinators and other species. Graham? Yeah. Could you just relate to the listeners how these fundamentals of research apply to the neonicotinoid family? Yeah, I was going to come on to that. I know. So when, when neonicotinoids came along, one of the attractive things to the farmer or to the chemical company is that A, there are 11,000 times more poisonous than than DDT. So you you only need to use a very, very, very small dose. That's the idea. But in fact, uh, the amount of neonicotinoids that you put, if you coat a single grain of corn, a maize granule, if you coat that with neonicotinoids, just paint it on so it's quite a thin layer, there's actually enough neonicotinoids in that little tiny layer on one seed of corn to kill 80,000 bees. That's, that's a, a level of poison, you know, that we just can't get our heads around. That was worked out by Dr. Christian Krupke, who's a scientist at Purdue University. So uh, when they started to, when they first put neonicotinoids on the market, the attitude of the industry when the bees began to die was they said, it can't possibly be the neonicotinoids because the amount that the bees ever come into contact with is so incredibly tiny, it can never, ever kill them. That was the official story. And, and in fact, Bayer originally said you would need to give bees a dose of 5,000 nanograms. A nanogram is a millionth of a gram in order to kill it. And the French did the research. They actually tried it, and they found out that you only had to give a bee three nanograms, not 5,000, just three nanograms would kill half the bees in 48 hours. Now, that's amazing. uh, But what came later was even more amazing. A scientist in France called uh, Dr. Belzunz, who worked at the National Agricultural Research Institute, a big government body like the USDA, he found that if he fed bees 40 nanograms, that's 40 billionths of a gram of imidacloprid, they all died, or 50% died, sorry, within 48 hours. So he, that's called the LD50, the lethal dose 
for 50% of the bees. So it's 40 nanograms per bee. That would kill half the bees in 48 hours. That wasn't really a surprise. What was staggeringly surprising was he then reduced the dose by a thousand times. Instead of giving them 40 nanograms, which are billionths of a gram, he gave them 40 picograms. And a picogram is a measurement that's almost too small to imagine. It's a trillionth of a gram. But what he did was he gave them that dose over a period of 10 days. And in 10 days, half the bees died, just as they had with the higher dose in 48 hours. So what that shows up is, one, this stuff is incredibly poisonous uh, because 40 uh, picograms is be almost beyond measurement. It's, it's such a tiny amount. But, but what Hank Tenick has pointed out is what that means is there is no safe level of exposure. When our bees go out into the cornfields or into the, flower, the wildflowers that grow around the cornfields, they are being exposed to neonicotinoids in the pollen, the nectar, in the water and the soil of the fields at, at levels thousands of times higher than what Belzunt was able to kill his entire hive with in 10 days. So because neonicotinoids have been used since 1994 in Europe and a little later than that in America, and because they persist in soil for up to five years, in some cases up to 19 years, that means that bees are going out into an, they're going into an environment that is literally saturated in levels of neonicotinoids that will always kill them after, after a long period of time. And it means they're going back to hives in which even the wax is impregnated with neonicotinoids from previous years, and the stored honey is impregnated, and the pollen and the nectar they're bringing in is impregnated. So the crucial thing about this, this toxicity over time relationship that these scientists worked out is that it doesn't matter how small the dose of neonicotinoids they're exposed to is. If it's, if it's present in the environment over a long period of time, like the entire season, which it is, those hives will die. And that's, that is the power of the chronic toxicity equation. Graham, if I might interject here, I think it's important to note that with the seed coatings, approximately 90% of the seed coating does not make it into the plant. It winds up in the soil and in the groundwater, and as you've said, accumulates over time uh, to be That's drawn right. up by non-target flowering plants. But I think more importantly, everything drinks, and the water is heavily contaminated with these poisons. But as we were talking, I did a little quick calculation, and Velzunces, I believe, showed ultimately, that one four thousandth of the chronic dose was capable of killing a colony of bees. And I did a little quick calculation. One four thousandth of a dose represents 44 million times the toxicity of DDT. If, if clothianidin is, is 11,000 times more toxic than DDT, and one four thousandth is enough to be terminal, that yeah. represents... 44 million times the toxicity of DDT. It's almost beyond comprehension. And what we're seeing is a massive 
cover-up of this evidence by the regulators? Well, the, the crucial principle, that's the, it's like a law, the crucial principle that Hank Tenekis derived from all this research is in the same way that it is illegal to allow any carcinogen into the food supply. And there, that's a fact. The reason is there is no safe level of exposure to a carcinogen. If you are exposed to one molecule of dioxin, there is a very strong chance you will at some point in the future develop cancer. Right? That's how dangerous dioxin is. And what Hank Tenick has pointed out is that the neonicotinoids work physiologically in exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. Any exposure damages and exposure over a prolonged period of time kills. So that means that the same law should be applied. We don't allow carcinogens in the human food and drink supply, and neonicotinoids should not be allowed in the, hum in the crops uh, which, are, which our bees and other animals feed on. Simple as that. Thank you. One of, the, one of the implications of all of this is that the entire way that we assess risk of new pesticides is completely wrong. Every pesticide registered in the United States goes through the, the old LD50 test. In other words, they give some subject animals like bees a certain dose, and as, uh, when, the, when the death level reaches 50% in 48 hours, that's the LD50, and everything else is then drawn up from that. And the implications of what we've been discussing tonight is that test will never reveal the true toxicity of most chemicals, most modern chemicals, to bees, because that's not the way they work. They work not over 48 hours, but over 10 days, 20 days, or 30 days, or even 90 days. And because the colony is exposed not just for 90 days, but year-round, ultimately every colony will succumb, so it will die. We need a new kind of test. It's as simple as that. I sincerely hope that the scientific community that is supporting the use of neonicotinoids pays attention to this research because it is really critical and it's not something that is negatable. It's not widely known and I think uh, most regulators don't understand this at all. According to Hank Tenekis, most regulators just haven't read the science. They don't know about this. I think it's uh, even more sinister than that. I think the regulators choose not to know. I think they're aware of this. They choose not to know so that they can claim ignorance. Unfortunately, Tom, I think that is the case. Graham, thank you so much for joining us today. It's always a pleasure. Well, thank you. It's a very dry and difficult subject to discuss on the radio, so I hope people got some of it. That's partly our role, is to deliver the dry... <laughs> difficult stuff. Yeah. Difficult stuff in some palatable form, and I think you've done well to enlighten the listeners. Thanks, Graham. Okay, thank you. Folks, please check out the companion article which will appear on theorganicview.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. This has been June Stoyer with the Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.